How did Ontario become Fort Nation? Canada's most populous province saw a big blue steamroller plow over the opposition to a commanding 76 seats in Queen's Park and all but decimating Ontario's grits. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe for Unpublished Ottawa. I'm Ed Hand. I think it's safe to say the Ontario PCs won the election despite themselves. Just think. In January, then-PC leader Patrick Brown bounced out of his spot after accusations surfaced involving young women. None of those complaints have gone before the courts. But that prompted a snap leadership race, which was acrimonious. Even when it came down to tabulating the leadership ballots, Christine Elliott was digging in against the numbers. In the end, though, it was Doug Ford who snatched the crown. And to add to the weight were messy nomination races and the fracturing of PC support to new parties who felt abandoned, like the Ontario Alliance, the Trillium Party, even the None of the Above Party. The whirlwind campaign saw plenty of theatrics, and as voting day loomed, the province polarized to two sides. Think about it. With the NDP eating the Liberals' lunch, Premier Kathleen Wynne conceded she had no chance to win. It was a Hail Mary pass to try and stop Ford, and it turned into an interception. The PCs ran back for a majority government. Doug Ford was seen as the most toxic of choices when it came to the Ontario PC leadership race, but he prevailed. His provincial disapproval rating was almost as high as Kathleen Wynne's, yet he prevailed. How did it happen? What does it tell us about Ontarians? Ian Holliday is a research associate with the Angus Reid Institute, which followed the election closely, and he joins us now. And Ian, it appeared there were plenty of things working against the PCs. How did Ontario become Ford Nation? Well, it's it's still still sort of an open question, isn't it? Um, and that's the thing that we do at, at the end of every election, particularly ones that have such a sort of strong narrative to them as this one did, uh, is you you look at what happened and you try to pick up the pieces and, and put everything together and, and figure out what really went on. Um, we did do uh, uh, some polling during the election that found a lot of things working against Doug Ford, as you mentioned, but there were a lot of things working against the other candidates as well. Uh, and I, I think what ended up carrying the day, or one of the things that may have ended up carrying the day for the PCs, was that there were enough people who were willing to uh, sort of, even if they were not hardcore members of Ford Nation, were willing to turn in Ford's direction rather than risk the possibility of a repeat of Bob Ray's NDP government, because from their perspective, that was the better choice. Now, whether all of your listeners would agree with that assessment uh, is is certainly up for debate. I imagine many of them would would disagree vehemently. But uh, as it as it ended up, those folks were outnumbered by the folks who were willing to uh, vote for Doug Ford and the PCs, either enthusiastically or less than enthusiastically. You know, it it seemed that the NDP had room to grow and the PCs didn't. What what happened to their vote? Well, turnout is always a, a key factor uh, in an election. We know that just, you know, this is something that's not just true in Canada, but across uh, North America and, and indeed across the world, uh, we, we tend to see uh, older people are more likely to be conservative by and large, and they're also more likely to vote. And so uh, the, the potential advantage for a left of center party like the NDP, often comes into play in a high turnout election when they can get 
a really inspiring or, or uh, motivating candidate, uh, either either a candidate in a local race or candidate at the top of the ballot in, in Andrea Horwath. Certainly the election of Barack Obama in the United States is a sort of quintessential example of this phenomenon where he developed momentum in an environment that was fairly hostile toward the incumbent Republican Party anyway, and became this sort of inspiring figure that rallied the youth vote and rose turnout levels significantly and carried him to a a significant victory in 2008. In Ontario this time around, we saw a higher turnout rate than we did in the previous election in 2014, but not the level of support that really comes with a, a big sort of progressive wave, typically. Was the NDP really ever in a position to win? And I, and I say that because we look at Andrea Horvath, and in and, and your numbers show that she was the, the most accepted of the three leaders, not that everybody had a great, great turnout. I'm wondering, in terms of the NDP, uh, despite the solid result, is Andrea Horvath on a, a short leash? It's um, it's certainly something that remains to be seen. This is not her first rodeo, so to speak. This is the third election that she's led the NDP in. And while she's gained seats in each of those, she hasn't been able to break through. And this really feels like the time that if it was going to happen for her, it would have. She was, as you mentioned, uh, much more favorably viewed by the Ontario electorate than Doug Ford or Kathleen Wynne. Um, and and it just di- didn't work out. So certainly the possibility that the the membership of the New Democrats there in Ontario would look at that and say, is it time to go in a different direction? Ian Holiday is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe, a research associate with the Angus Reid Institute as we look back at the Ontario election. And from your perspective, what is in store for the Liberals and their seven seats? Well, I mean, I, I like to imagine that I know that in politics, we, we often talk about uh, there's, there's never a, a pure or altruistic motivation, but I like to sometimes imagine that there might be one. Uh, not everything has to be strategy. Certainly, Kathleen Wynne's decision to concede the election before it was even, you know, before, it had, before ballots had mm-hmm. even been cast. Um, is a, a political play that you can analyze through political lenses. But I also felt like I detected a tone of relief in her voice as she was making this concession and, and saying, you know, that, that whoever Ontarians pick for their, their new premier, it's not going to be me, and I'm okay with that. I like to think that that was Kathleen Wynne uh, turning the page, not only personally, but also for the Ontario Liberal Party. And now in opposition with only seven seats without the label of official opposition, um, there is room for the party to find itself again and, and mount a vigorous campaign to try to get back into power in Queen's Park, whether it's in the next election or another one down the road. The Green Party gets its first win and will send an MPP to Queen's Park. How much was the Angus Reid Institute keeping tabs on the Greens, and, and what's this mean for the movement? Well, it's certainly a, a positive sign for the movement. You know, there has been a sense that at the 
federal level, the Greens have been a bit stalled lately. Um, but what we've seen in the last couple of provincial elections, now Ontario and before that in BC, is some some breakthroughs that are going to bring some new blood into the Green Party, uh, not just in the provinces where those new MLAs have been elected, but hopefully, at least from a Green perspective, uh, into the federal scene as well. Elizabeth May um, has, has, I think, in the eyes of most Green Party supporters, done an excellent job in her role, but she's been quite lonely uh, over the years. And that, I think, will be the next target for the Greens going forward is can we build on this momentum that we've developed at the provincial level, even as our federal vote share has been stalled or even declining? Can we turn the support for local candidates and, and local leaders like Mike Schreiner uh, and, and turn that into more momentum for uh, an, electing another MP at the federal level and, and potentially finding a successor to Elizabeth May as the leader of the federal Greens. You know, voter turnout was the, the highest since 1999. From, from your perspective, is that a sign people desperately wanted change or, or they were engaged in this election? I think turnout is, is usually a reflection of engagement and of change. This was absolutely a change election. That was the one thing that all of the voters that we surveyed could agree upon. Uh, it seemed, was it's time for a change. Now, they ultimately chose, they, they were divided as to who they wanted to deliver that change, and they ultimately chose Doug Ford. But I think the idea that, uh, you know, a party that has been in power for uh, 15 years, as the liberals had, um, you know, needs to be on its way out and it's time to to get rid of them is can be a, a very strong motivating factor for people. Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Ian Holiday is a research associate with the Angus Reid Institute with his perspective on the Ontario election campaign. The Ontario election brings us a new government that's promised a lot. None of it costed out. It brings us a new voice in opposition as the NDP will now sit across the aisle. And it brings Ontario its first Green Party MPP. Leader Mike Schreiner made history with his win in Guelph, and it wasn't close. Ontario's first Green MPP, Mike Schreiner, joins us on the Unpublished Cafe. And Mike, first off, congratulations. And you mentioned momentum that was behind you in Guelph. What do you think drove that? Well, Ed, first of all, it's a pleasure being on, and I appreciate the the kind congratulations. I think that what drove the momentum were really three things. So one was I've worked really hard in Guelph for a long time and been a real champion for the community and have been involved in a number of community organizations, volunteer boards, things like that. And so I think people here in Guelph just sort of see me as an active, engaged citizen who, um, as my role as Green Party leader, applied that uh, on a number of issues that are really important to people in Guelph. I think the second reason is that this was an election about change. And so clearly, given the shift we've seen in terms of, you know, who's going to form government, who's the official opposition, the collapse of the liberal vote, uh, voters wanted something different. And in Guelph, those voters decided that the change they wanted was what the Green Party was offering. And that leads me to my third point, which is I think the way we conducted our campaign and the message we delivered around doing politics differently really resonated here in Guelph. 
people really like the fact that I ran a positive campaign. I talked about doing politics different. And what I meant by that was that, you know what, we, were, we weren't going to spend our time tearing other parties down. We saw that a lot, particularly in the leaders' debates. We talked about how the Green Party would build Guelph up, how we would build Ontario up. We were very honest with people. We said, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to do it. And this is how we want to pay for it. And I think that resonated uh, strongly with voters here, which was one of the reasons I had such a significant uh, and resounding um, election victory. And I think once voters see me in action at Queen's Park and hear that same message across the province, we're going to continue to elect Greens moving forward. And you got a seat without a seat at the leaders' debate. Exactly. You know, if you look at past Greens that have been elected across the country, uh, um, the Green leader was in the leaders' debate. And so I think this is the first time that you've seen a Green elected now who was not part of the leaders' debate. And so that was certainly a significant hurdle we had to overcome. But we had a fantastic team here in Guelph that really pulled it off. What does your win mean for the Green movement in Canada? Well, I think it's pretty significant because people have said to me, you know, okay, it's great. Greens have elected people on the coast, you know, in, in British Columbia and PEI and New Brunswick. But can Greens really get elected in the you know, the heart of the country, in the largest, uh, most populous province in the country? And really, we're the, the heart of where the establishment is in Ontario in many respects. And so the fact that we made a breakthrough in Ontario, I think, is significant. Mike Schreiner is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He is the Ontario Green Party leader and the first Green Party MPP to go to Queen's Park. Now, the win is key, Mike. What is the job ahead of you? Well, I think, first of all, I'm focusing on setting up a very strong constituency office, making sure that you know I play that important role that an MPP plays and serving the community. I think one of the things I want to do that may be a little unique is use my office as just sort of a citizen engagement hub to help people, you know, organize around issues that they care about, uh, create space for community conversations about how do we make Guelph better? How do we make Ontario better? Uh, Obviously, I'm, you know, working through my legislative strategy of how we can be most effective at Queen's Park and just effective across the province in delivering our key uh, objectives. And, you know, I talked a lot in the campaign about how do we create jobs that put people on planet first? How do we leap into the future and embrace the global clean economy and make Ontario a leader? And in my case, you know, make Guelph and Ontario a leader. Uh, and then take the prosperity and in a fiscally responsible way, invest that in good public services like expanding health care, improving education, making sure everyone has a place they can afford to call home. And then obviously protecting the people and places we love. Uh, especially looking at, you know, not only protecting the existing green belt, but expanding it in southern Ontario to include the blue belt across the province, protecting um, farmland and source water regions. And I'm looking at how I can go to Queen's Park and reach across the aisle and work cooperatively with other parties where, where we can find areas of common ground and just really get away from this adversarial politics that, you know, I'm always right, you're always wrong. Let's just criticize the other the other parties instead of actually find areas of common ground. Um, that being said, you know obviously there will be areas of confrontation. You know I already 
you know, sent out a pretty strongly worded statement today in response to uh, Mr. Ford announcing that one of his first acts is going to be to completely dismantle the province's uh, climate uh, action plan and the cap and trade system in an irresponsible way. So, you know, I will look at ways to be cooperatively and work across party lines. And then, you know, there will be times where confrontation will be in order and I'll criticize the government. Now, you mentioned uh, pulling out of uh, pulling out of cap and trade in an irresponsible way. Is there a responsible way? Well, I think the Green Party's plan is the responsible way. We said that we would phase out of cap and trade because I agree the liberal plan uh, isn't the most effective uh, way to price uh, pollution. But I think pulling out of it immediately without any alternative plan is irresponsible. I think it's bad for business. It sends the wrong signal to clean clean economy companies around the world. It's almost telling them, oh, well, Ontario is not open for business, you know, in the area where we're seeing global job growth. And so our plan to do a five-year phase out of cap and trade and replace it with a revenue neutral uh, carbon fee and dividend program where you put a price on pollution and all the money that's raised from that would go back to the people of Ontario to help them navigate the transition to a low carbon economy. You know, your, your win is historic, but you're still just one vote. How do you plan on making your voice heard? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been asked that question a lot. And, you know, I look at what other green MLAs are doing across the country. David Kuhn in New Brunswick was able to pass four pretty significant pieces of legislation as private members bills because he approached it in ways of how do I work with other parties instead of just, you know, criticize other parties. Uh, Peter Beaven Baker has done the same in PEI. And because of that, you know, he's been able to double their caucus. And now the PEI Greens are pulling neck and neck with the governing liberals. And it looks like, you know, they could form official opposition or even possibly form government uh, after the next election, if you can believe the poll numbers. And then obviously, uh, Andrew Weaver in British Columbia has taken that exact same approach and tripled their caucus now, and they hold the balance of responsibility in a minority government. So one green MPP can make a huge difference at Queen's Park. And, you know, I plan on learning from the lessons that other green leaders of how they've made a difference, and I will apply that in Ontario. You talk about uh, just one MPP, one Green Party MPP, but after, after the election, we were hearing that the Liberals wanted you to join them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. The Liberals wanted me to join them, but I want to be very clear with your listeners that I have no desire to join the Liberals. Uh, matter of fact, if they want to come join the Green Party, you know, we're, we'd be interested in them considering that, though we'd have to vet them first just to make sure they, you know, meet meet our, our, our values and subscribe to Green Party values. Uh, but, I, you know, my goal here is that uh, I'm going to go to Queen's Park as an elected Green MPP a strong voice for Guelph, a strong voice for changing the way politics is done in Ontario. And I think as one Green MPP, I can make a big difference. Mike, I wish you all the best at Queen's Park, and congratulations on the win. Hey, Ed, it's my pleasure, and always happy to be on your show. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and becomes the party's first ever MPP in Ontario. So we're looking at a PC majority for the next four years after 15 of sitting in opposition. We have the province's first Green member of the Ontario legislature. Now to gaze ahead in the province and see where we're going and how Doug Ford's win will affect change in Canada, Caroline Andrew is the director of the Centre on Governance at the University of Ottawa 
and she joins us today. Now, Carolyn, the Ontario election reminded me a bit of that federal election back in 1992. I thought the PCs decimated. Other than the numbers, do you see any other similarities? Well, I think there are some similarities in that elections like that are always about uh, the kind of support, the kind of um, support that the winners get, largely because of things that people dislike about other governments, other priorities. And I think it's exactly the same this time. The, the really mass support uh, for the new Ontario government is really that they hate the federal government priorities. They hate spending money on daycare. They hate spending money on social housing. They don't much like immigration, and they really hate feminism. Uh, they also hate the provincial the provincial parties. Um, Win was particularly hated. I have a daughter who listens to social media, and she says she has never heard or seen more disgusting remarks, largely about Wynne being a lesbian and a woman, but largely about anti-lesbianism. So they hate Wynne with a fervor. They hate the NDP because there again, it's spending on social housing and daycare, and people just don't understand that uh, it's very hard to convince people that if you're uh, on below the average income, you're better to pay taxes and get services, but nobody gets that. Um, people don't get that. Governments don't get that. So I think there was, so there's this mass support for, uh, for the new government, but the weaknesses, which are, many, and I'll get on to the priorities, mm-hmm. but the weaknesses are that they're not going to be able to deliver. You know, have you seen an election campaign like this where the managing editor of a major newspaper, and in this case it was the Toronto Sun, issuing a memo calling for all writers and colonists to slant their coverage? I don't think I've ever seen that before. No, no, I think it was uh, very... I thought, in fact, I thought the whole... I thought the. The night of the election, the coverage was pretty feeble. I don't know that we've got the research capacity. I thought the 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 coverage was pretty, you know, it was all about which which riding was going which way, but it wasn't about what's happening to the economy of North America, et cetera. I thought that was pretty um, pretty disappointing uh, because I think that the 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 priorities of the government uh, he wants to cut taxes but there's no money so that's going to be difficult uh he says he'll find millions of uh cash that or millions of expenditures of the government but we've heard that before remember good old mike harris and the common sense revolution mm-hmm. we know that there aren't millions um, and they'll try and pretend they find millions, but they won't. So, um, so they won't be able to go on to their priorities. Um, the jobs, the problem with jobs is that they're, we're losing jobs and we're particularly losing working class jobs. And that's his supporters. 
they um, they're not the people who've so I think he's going to have real trouble with the whole what's happening with all the discussions with with Trump and with the uh, the the discussions about who's going to tax what um, I I think we're we're losing some of the and we already see it we're losing some of the jobs that we had and so I think that he's going to find it very difficult to deliver on jobs and that was his that was the overriding thing on the night of the election jobs for everyone a job for everyone who wants to work um which again is just not going to be so I think we're going to be into a, a he'll have a certain it's clear a certain um per, part of the first year or so where he's still going to have all the support and the supporters who think that he can do what he said he would do. And then I think we're going to begin to see um, both the, well, we'll see what happens to the the liberals and whether they can start to rebuild. It won't be for the next election, that's clear, but it might be for one after that. And I think we'll begin to see um, some, well, well, we'll find out from what's going to happen at the federal level, because I think Ontario always sees itself as sort of really Canada. They think that they're the economy, which they are, of course, the big economy. But I think uh, we'll begin to see that they start thinking about what's happening in in Ontario and not so much just being beside themselves with what they think is going on at the federal level. So I think there will be a period of fairly uh, possibilities for Ford to do what he said he would do. But as I say, I don't think there's um, any... And, and of course, the, the, the things these people don't like are also the things that they need. Most of these... Uh, everyone in... Uh, well, the, the aging of the Ontario population means that even people who don't like spending on social housing actually want their parents to be able to get into decent retirement homes, mm-hmm. decent places for what they need medically, decent so they're they're that's very contradictory and ambiguous because they actually do want um they think they don't want public housing because they think that public housing is for the no goods, but they actually do desperately want their elderly uh, parents who are going to have more and more complications um, needing decent accommodation and needing people who want to work with them. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so they do actually want immigrant workers, but they don't think they do because they have prejudicial views. So I think it's going to be a, I think there's going to be a whole discussion um, in the after about a year or two as to whether they really do want what they say they don't want and they really do um, want to, they say they don't like paying taxes, but they really want there to be taxes to support these public uh, public services that we're going to need. We're, mm-hmm. to, to support a cliche, we're an aging population, we don't have children, 
So we do need more people to look after our aging population. Um, And that's a dynamic that isn't going to change. But I think it won't change quickly in Ontario because there is this mass support for, um, for some of the... Some of the understandable um, worries of lower middle class people who, especially in Toronto suburbs, are having a terrible time paying their mortgages, losing housing, losing. But also, I think we're um, going to maybe see, I hope anyways, a a lessening of the kind of Trump echo echo about... uh, not having sex education, not having uh, hating uh, lesbianism and encore worse about uh, different forms of gender identity. Uh, but I think uh, that may diminish a bit. It'll depend on what happens in part in the U.S. Um, but so I think we'll have a couple of years where uh, where the government will have a liberty to try and put into place what it says it can what it says it wanted to do but i think they're just structural issues that are going to make that extremely difficult particularly for the the kind of population who voted for ford caroline andrew is joining us on the unpublished cafe she's the director of the center on governance at the university of ottawa as we look back at the ontario election and we'll just shift away from doug ford for a second the ndp are now in opposition and it is a move up for them but it also seems like it was a missed opportunity as they polled well but they couldn't turn that into seats yeah and i don't know whether it was that's a uh, I don't know whether it was that they didn't have the troops on the ground and weren't able to turn it into into seats. They kept their sort of more traditional bases, but um, I think we'll there'll probably be a fairly public discussion in the NDP as to what went wrong. Uh, I think there'll be uh, not for a while, but I think they'll start to be a discussion about whether Horvath is the right person to continue to lead the party. She certainly did well in the beginning of the campaign, but uh, I think people will start to uh, to question as to whether she's the right person. And of course, that always creates uh, conflict in the party and discussions on what are the what are the issues. Uh, and between the kind of environmental left and the kind of trade union uh, left, I think there'll be um, some sort of boiling up of discussion. Not, of course, as much as there will be in the what remains of the Liberal Party, right. which is going to have a huge discussion as to... Um, there's a temporary leader, but what what do you what do you do? Who do you what do you build on? Is is there well after 15 years? Was it just you know they were way past the best before date, or did yeah, all those I little think, things start piling up and piling up? Yeah, I think it was the piling up, the piling up. Um, I mean, there were things that was McGinty passed on. Uh, an enormous bundle of trouble. And I think that just kept growing and growing. And then there was really a personal 
I would almost use the word hatred listening to my what my daughter listened to on social media, a really hatred of win. Um, and so the combination, but I think it was more, they've had a long term and, um, and you just accumulate people who are irritated by the government for some, uh, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps good ideas, but terribly badly done and um, other ideas that are probably not that good um, and some ideas that are good, but the electorate isn't perhaps quite ready for it. So I think they'll, they're going to be a while in just figuring out what, uh, and so I think they'll be quite quiet for a couple of three, several years. And I think you're right that it's just uh, the accumulation after about 30 years, governments just develop so many people irritated by this and that, that there, it's very difficult to, and when it becomes focused on some leader, it becomes a reason to lose the election a bit like if you want, like Harper at the federal level. I mean, uh, he won several elections, but the uh, certain base, the accumulated uh, irritation of people for all kinds of things just made him um, the sort of figure of a vast irritation of, an, mm-hmm. of enough of the electorate that you got the result you got. What does uh, a seat, uh, the breakthrough for the Green Party, mean, mean for them? I think that's interesting, and I think that it'll be very interesting to see how they can play on it, because I think... Uh, We've seen in the West the Greens, and sometimes, again, the Greens get into difficult, uh, difficult defining what are their principal, uh, how they should move forward on what specific event. But it's clear that the environment is a huge concern, and uh, I think it's interesting to see how they're going to be able to uh, keep the envir- keep the environmental, uh, perhaps um, making clear that there's also an economic argument, um, both in better agricultural ways. Um, and I think it's interesting the the connections that are sort of being made between uh, environmentalism. Um, the interest in in healthy food and sort of moving the environmental issue into something that is touches people at a variety of levels it's not only about it is about the planet but it is also about uh what where you get your decent food in various communities so it's about plastic recycling it, it it so i think there is a possibility it's i think it needs a a base who can keep talking about all of these issues and trying to keep them together rather than separate them out but they certainly always have a it'll be very challenging for the person here to try and keep it as a as a broad sphere of issues rather than 
Um, but of course, that's always difficult because you're always having to battle in the legislature on one specific bill. So I think it's going to be a challenge, especially for one person, mm-hmm. um, to be able to keep that broad vision and keep the coalition of the different relief, really quite different kinds of groups who find themselves in the Green Party. What, what does Doug Ford as Premier of Ontario mean for Prime Minister Trudeau, who is looking at an election next year? Mm-hmm. I think it uh, it will mean it will be a, a huge issue. I think for for Trudeau and the Liberals is how they can um, keep their keep their focus on. Uh, perhaps it's going to mean trying to make a greater demonstration of fiscal. Well, not prudence, but uh, better explaining of government financing, because there is going to be a, um, and and in a sense, it fits with the government's uh, economic agenda. They're not going to be able to make the promises, um, the sort of big promises. But at the same time, I think it could probably mean that they should focus on explaining how things like daycare and public housing are going to be are going to enter in how they're going to do the right kind of um, governance to to be from the center on governance but how they're going to connect uh the private sector the public sector the non-for-profit sector to do some of these big issues that people want the same thing with daycare how do you do uh daycare that's both offered directly by the government community run daycare uh different different ways of keeping those coalitions together which involves reaching out to the private sector, but also keeping the connections to the community sector, um, including, I think, a role for the cities, a much more important role for the cities, partly because that will emphasize the importance of urban issues, but also it de-emphasizes a sort of a fight between province and federal. It involves this whole new set of actors who are, in fact, in charge of, uh, the, if you want, the economic destinies of the vast majority of the Canadian population. If you add up all the big cities, uh, you really have uh, most of Canada. And so I think that, that it will probably mean showing an ability to work with the provinces, but also with the uh, municipalities and getting the, which will be a complicated question for the provinces who don't always like the federal mm-hmm. government dealing with the municipalities. On the other hand, those, the big issues of urban, well, the big, big issues, urban transportation, affordable housing, child care are all intimately questions that engage Yes, the provinces, but also the federal government, but increasingly the the big cities. And I think it may push a little bit of discussion, not much, but a little, about how you reorganize um, the governance structures of Canadian federalism so as to at least recognize that as a very urban nation, uh, 
we need to have some way of connecting those big cities with the provinces and the federal government in a more cooperative relationship. So that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, we can always hope. <laughs> Caroline, I, yeah. want to, I want to thank you for joining us. Not at all. A real pleasure. I want to thank Caroline Andrew for joining us. She's director of the Center on Governance at the University of Ottawa. I'd also like to thank Green Party leader Mike Schreiner for joining us to talk about his historic win to put him in the legislature, as well Ian Holliday of the Angus Reid Institute, who helped break down how the PCs rolled to a 76-seat majority in Ontario. Thanks for listening to the Unpublished Cafe for Unpublished Ottawa. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>